Welcome to the We Are Calvary podcast, where our mission is to share Jesus and help people experience life change. Thank you so much for listening. Here's this week's message. Well, good morning, church family. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet for the reading of the word. If you are a guest with us today, we take moments every single week in our gatherings to come around the scriptures because we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We believe it is relevant for us today, so we take these moments in our gatherings to come around the scriptures to learn more about who God is and who Jesus is and how are we called to respond with our lives to the saving message of Jesus and to learn to walk with the Spirit of God each and every day. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. We're in the midst of a series entitled Invitation to a Journey, and we're going to be looking at this portion of scripture where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church in Rome. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. We'll have the scriptures on the screens. But let's begin to read this passage together. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, take this word. Have it go deep into our hearts. Have it minister to us. Limit the distractions in our minds right now that would want us to focus elsewhere when we need to be present right here in this moment so that the Spirit of God can do something unique in our hearts. And so we love you, Lord, in your precious and your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. October 10th of this past fall, my wife and I walked into the hospital and my wife gave birth to our healthy baby boy, August. About a day and a half later, we got to leave and to go home, introduce August to his sister Astoria and Otto, and we've been kind of learning as we go since then. Another couple in our church, 27 days after we entered into the hospital, they too entered into the hospital to deliver their baby girl. But their story is very different from our story. At their 20-week ultrasound, they got the news that their daughter had a condition that would leave her incompatible with life outside of the womb. So when they walked into the hospital that night, they entered in, they gave birth to their baby Skylar, and then 70 minutes later, she passed away in their arms. 21 days after that, we all went to the New Tacoma Cemetery and we had her graveside memorial. We were at a part of the graveyard that is called Lullaby Lane, and it is where children who have passed away go to be buried. And I remember standing there and just realizing the weight of this moment, and just beginning even to imagine the, the extent of pain that has been felt in this place. And I remember leaving that day, and just what continued to resound in my heart was, God, you are going to have to show up. You are going to have to show up. Now, it is not lost on me that that is a really hard and heavy way to begin a sermon. 
I get that. In fact, there are some of you even in this room right now where you might resonate with that story. May not exactly the same, but the same emotion of pain and frustration and agony of the loss of a child. You know what that feels like. And so it's really hard to have that emotion brought up in this moment. And even though it is hard and even though it is heavy, the reality is that suffering is a very human experience. And that every single one of us in this room, at one point or another, you have either come out of a season of suffering, you are in the midst of a season of suffering, or you will suffer. It is inevitable in your life. D.A. Carson, on his book, Offering Reflections on Suffering, makes this claim. The truth of the matter is that we, that all we have to do is live long enough, and we will suffer. Our loved ones will die. We ourselves will be afflicted with some disease or other. Midlife often brings its own pressures, disappointments, senses of failure, decreasing physical strength, infidelity, and the things that represent the suffering that takes place in relatively stable societies. Add war, racism, genocide, grinding poverty, starvation. See, it is true that we will all, in fact, one day get the unexpected call. We will get the diagnosis. We will get the type of news that will shatter us to our core and leave us disorientated, wondering, God, where are you in this? Wondering, crying, and for many of us on our hands, praying to the Lord, be near to us. Comfort us. See, life is filled with these moments of just the mountaintop experience where everything seems to be going so well, but it is also filled with the valley moments. To use the biblical metaphor, there are times where we will experience the streams of, of new life, but then also there will be moments in the desert. The times ascending through life's greatest triumphs, but then also the moments where we descend into the deepest and the darkest depths of the human experience. And the Bible is not shy about the inevitability of suffering. Listen to the Apostle Peter. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on. Or many of us know the famous words of Jesus where he said, in this world you will have trouble. And so because in this world, in our fragile human state, we will have trouble, then that means we as the church have to begin to develop language in our discipleship for suffering. We have to be willing to talk about the hard things because the reality is life is oftentimes hard. And we do not need to pretend that everything is okay. We do not need to pretend that when we are experiencing deep senses of wound and pain that you have to somehow shy that away. No, no, no. The Lord invites us to come to him in an openness and full transparency to say, things are really hard right now, Lord, and I need you to meet me here. And so we, the church, need to be willing to step into these types of conversations. We must begin to develop a theological framework for suffering because if we do not, we will risk to intermingle our suffering, not with our faith, but with secularism. We will begin to try to, instead of engaging with what the scripture would say for us to step into in those difficult moments, we'll begin to adapt to the ideologies of how the world deals with suffering. See, in the world, we oftentimes try to, without God and the secular vision, we think that suffering is useless. 
it does not serve a purpose. There is no real hope in it. So what we attempt to do is we attempt to just simply manage our suffering, to carry on, to, to do our best to quickly move beyond it and the discomfort that it brings so that we can get back to our comfortable life. Or if we're not trying to, to manage it, oftentimes what we try to do is we try to medicate it. Secularism tries to balance suffering with pleasure. So if I'm experiencing this level of suffering, then I have to experience this level of pleasure and somehow they might offset themselves. So we medicate. This is an escapist type of behavior. Basically, it is driven by this desire to have happiness at all cost. But for the believer in Jesus, see, our invitation is very different. Our invitation is to intermix and to intermingle our suffering with our faith. Not to just simply manage it or to medicate our suffering. But in the words of the Apostle Paul, we are actually called to rejoice in our suffering. I know that is a hard teaching. I know that even as I communicate that from this platform, you might be thinking that does not fit anywhere in my mental framework of what is true and what is right and what could be. But as the Apostle Paul begins to unpack this, I think that if we dive into this text, we will begin to create a framework as to what exactly it is that he means when he says we are to rejoice and how we can begin to experience this even in this life. And so our text today begins with the words, therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we can begin to frame out a basic theology for suffering, looking at three key phrases in these two verses. The first one is this. We have been justified through faith. Interestingly, before Paul gets to talking about suffering or rejoicing in suffering, if you look at the writings of Paul, what he always does is he's going to establish a biblical theological framework for what he's about to say. So something about our justification through faith is going to be tethered to our ability to step into seasons of suffering. Now, when we say the term justification through faith, what we mean is the beautiful reality that God came down to earth, took on human flesh, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a sinless and a perfect life. And then he gave himself up over to be crucified on a cross so that those who put their faith in the work of the cross could be freely justified through their faith in that work. And so we have experienced this justification through faith. D.A. Carson says this, from any Christian perspective, our theoretical and practical approach to evil and suffering must fasten on the cross or we are bound to take a false step. See, friends, the biblical story, it begins with no sin and no illness and no death and no suffering. And then the biblical story ends the same way. No sin, no illness, no death, no suffering of any kind. But we right now, we find ourselves in the middle. We are in the space in between. Yes, that's how the world was created. Yes, that's how this whole thing is gonna culminate. But right now, we will have times of suffering. But also remind yourself that in the midst of that moment, there still is the cross. 
And what the cross does is it completely dismantles our typical human way of thinking. And it says that there is something greater taking place if you will yet just receive the good work of the cross. And what is that good work of the cross? Well, let's go to the second phrase. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that Paul is speaking of is not a subjective feeling of peace. It's rather, this peace is a state of being at at peace instead of at war. See, the, the hostility between God and humanity has now ceased because of Christ's work on the cross. Those of us who put our faith in Jesus have been reconciled back into right relationship with God. And I think Tim Keller says it so beautifully, who just a number of weeks ago passed away from pancreatic cancer. He says, Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. And so we are justified through our faith. We experience this peace with God. But then also we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The word hope here does not just speak of the mere possibility, but it is a certainty. Our boast is in the certainty of one day seeing and experiencing the glory of God. The content of our hope is all of the things that is secured by the cross. And some we will realize in the here and now, and others we will realize later. And the fact that we will realize some of it later, or in some of your circumstances, most of it later, is why we hold on to such passages as Revelation chapter 21, verses three through five. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of old things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And so this justification that we have through faith in Christ, our being at peace with God through Christ, the grace that we stand in, the hope that we have in the future, it serves as a foundation for our framework for suffering. And then Paul moves into verse three. And he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. Now, glory is the same Greek word that translates as rejoice. We are to rejoice in our sufferings. How? Now, catch what he says. He does not tell us that we are to rejoice because of our sufferings. No one likes to suffer. But the invitation is that in the midst of that human reality, we are to rejoice. And I think the next line is provides the, the reason because he says, because we know. Because we know something is what allows us to engage in suffering at that level. 
And I don't think it's just because we know of what he's about to communicate. I also think it's because we know of what we just spoke on. Because we know we are justified through faith. Because we know that we are at peace with God. Because we know that we have a hope and a future that is not tied to the reality of what I'm experiencing in this moment. And then also because I know that perseverance will produce character. And character will expound an even more hope. See, friends, we have to realize that you will only learn to rejoice in suffering when you first have learned the value of what suffering produces. And so we have to understand and develop a theological framework to say, the goal of my life is to bring God glory forever. The goal of my life is to become more formed into the image of Christ. If that is not your long-term goal in your life, then you will suffer in the midst of suffering because you will not see it having purpose for that end. And so you have to begin to cultivate this deep understanding that when Jesus begins to speak to his disciples and begins to throw out the Sermon on the Mount and begins to teach and then the apostles come and they begin to build off of that and we continue in the New Testament to see the reality that we are called to become more like Jesus, that has to be your aim in life. And when you finally surrender and submit to that end, then you'll begin to see that every single thing that you deal with in life has potential. Potential to create in you a new being, to begin to exude the characteristics of who Christ is. See, N.T. Wright, he says in his commentary about this verse, he says, he, Paul, sees a steady progression in which God uses our suffering for the same purposes as he gives us his own presence and love to transform us into the truly human people we were made to be. So if our aim in life is to become more Christ-like, we will rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering, if we allow it to, will produce Christ-likeness. Now it is key to understand if we allow it to because suffering will not automatically make you more like Jesus. Just because we suffer does not mean we will be transformed. It's all about your attitude towards it. It's about your willingness to do the things that he's about to tell us. Number one is to persevere. This word is the word endurance. Suffering produces endurance when we exercise it with faith during the difficult times. This is what Eugene Peterson so famously called the long obedience in the same direction. It's that continual step in front of the other to wake up each and every day to say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread that I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. I'm gonna take one step forward. I might take even a few steps back, but I will keep pressing on because I believe that your vision for life is good. I think this is why Jesus' brother James can make the following claim. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, as you persevere through the difficult season, as you have that attitude of, of resilience, knowing of my hope and my justification and what ultimately will transpire here in the world, then my character can begin to be developed and begin to be reshaped. I can begin to be formed into the image of Jesus instead of deformed based upon the ideologies of the world. See, persevering through suffering is a means of spiritual formation. 
it strips us of what we have grown to love and it invites us back to what John talks about in Revelation, this first love. See, suffering will strip you. Your ideals, your desires, your wants, your hopes, what you believe is going to make you most happy, it will begin to strip those away from you. And then ultimately you will be left with nothing except for everything that you ever needed. And sometimes the stripping has to take place so that we will actually finally pick up the very thing that will give you life. And that's the hard part for us in the West because for most of us, life is relatively good. Most of you drove here in cars today. Most of you have a home today. I'm not saying that everybody does, but most of you in this room do. And we have all of these things that we carry. And then when we suffer, it is just so difficult because it begins to strip much of how we've gotten our identity, much of how we find fulfillment. And at the very end, if we will let it all go, we will see the foot of the cross and say, okay, maybe finally I will take up my cross and follow you. And then God will meet you in that moment. And then the third part of this is then we will begin to expound in a deep sense of hope a hope for the future, a hope for even this moment. That's why the uh, scriptures talk about have a reason for the hope that is within you. We as Christians have the greatest of hope because we know how this whole thing ends. And that should change the way that we approach the here and now. That should change the way that we approach even the most difficult of times. He ends by saying, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, even though we just spent 20 minutes creating a basic framework for suffering, I need to make sure you know something. It's still really going to hurt. D.A. Carson says, but thinking through the theology of suffering and resolving in advance how you will respond, however praiseworthy the exercise cannot completely prepare you for the shock of suffering itself. It is like jumping into a bitterly cold lake. You can brace yourself for the experience all day, but when you actually jump in, the shock to your system will still snatch your breath away. You see, the, the couple that I spoke of earlier, this experience, it snatched their breath away. And many of you, I think you know that feeling. Now, the beautiful part about that couple is that they attend our church and they're here this morning and I invited them to help me finish this message because I want you to hear from their hearts. I want you to hear what God has done in them and through them. I want you to hear the reality of people who are in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances and to see the hope and the faith that they have. And so I wanna invite up Cody and Nikki Hawkins. So Cody and Nikki, what has it looked like to trust God in the midst of this incredible uh, season of suffering that you have found yourselves in? Uh, I think before we experienced all that we have, I thought I trusted God a lot. And then I realized when life goes sideways, Maybe I don't actually trust him all that much. I think my plans are better. 
And I remember right when we got Skye's diagnosis, Skylar is our daughter. I remember when we got Skye's diagnosis, uh, at that same appointment, they also informed us that it was because of a genetic condition that we were carriers of and any future children also had a 25% chance of ending in stillbirth. And we were wrecked. And I remember going home and sitting in the floor of our nursery, angry and crying out to God, Lord, if my daughter is the cost, if my children are the cost, I don't know how to do this. And the Lord immediately gave me a vision of Jesus's body, lifeless, being lowered down from the cross into Mary's arms. And it was so evident. God, you get it. Mm. And I needed to be seen in that moment and God made sure I was seen. Yeah. He's not distant and he, he needed me to know that I see it and mm. I feel it. I feel what this pain is like, I know it. And so I did a deep dive into what are the promises of God because I thought I knew them and I, I don't. <laughs> so I need to figure them out. And so I spent days, months in my Bible going through what are the actual promises of God. And I was actually surprised to realize the majority of the promises are not so much circumstantial as they are promises about his character and promises about who he is. And I think where I went wrong and a lot of us go wrong is we make assumptions about how life will unfold or how things will look based upon his character. Uh, but all he promises is who he is. And I wrote down some of those promises because, I mean, there's countless, but um, some of them about his character. He's good to all and compassionate on all he has made. He gives strength to the weary. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll be with you wherever you go. He'll give you rest, peace, comfort. He's an advocate for you. He's a provider. He's unchanging. He's patient, everlasting, merciful, trustworthy. So many more. And also the promises that were circumstantial uh, in the New Testament are about suffering. <laughs> and there's 73 promises in the New Testament that promise that on earth we will suffer. And I just don't think we talk about that in America very much. And I don't think we talk about it in American church and our culture that much. And um, I'm so thankful for Pastor Daniel and for a church that does talk about the hard things and talk about the things that are um, bold and painful because they're real and they're needed and we need to know where the heck God is in the midst of them. Um, and they're applicable to all of us. And so um, the promises of God was huge for redefining and relearning what it means to actually trust in God. Yeah. You know, we sing a song here at the church called Goodness of God. And the chorus says, you know, I will sing of the goodness of God. And I just would love to hear, how have you wrestled with the goodness of God in the midst of suffering? Yeah, there's been a lot of wrestling with what goodness of God looks like. I think for us, it was a big shift in our mind. We have this idea of what we think a, God looks, a good God looks like. We're gonna have 
the job that we want, the family we want, the house in downtown Puyallup or wherever it may be. And then we started looking into what does it say about what is God's goodness? And we start reading through the Bible and saying that, you know, it's anything that brings glory to God, anything that brings him uh, on the throne, anything that bears fruit that is leading to him and glorifying him. And so we had to just completely strip down what we thought a good God was and and reframe our thinking. And we see Jesus say, thy will be done. And oftentimes we want our will to be done. So yeah. if it doesn't fit within what we think yeah. our life should look like, then we don't trust it. And so reframing that and saying, Lord, like, where do you want us? What does this look like? How do we be obedient to the life that you've called us to live when it doesn't look good to us, but we know that it's good to you yeah. and it's what you're calling us to do? Yeah. Yeah, the, the word good was hard for me for a while. And I remember for months I was like, there will never be a time that I can say this is good. Like, I don't even know how to say God is good because a good God wouldn't allow this to happen. And I wrestled with that. And as I wrestled with that, I was brought to the verse, Romans 8, 28, which is where God works all things for the good of his people. And I was like, that's not possible. Like, I'm never gonna be able to think this is good. And in the footnotes of my study Bible for that verse, it redefined good and that changed everything for me um, to realize what God's version of good is compared to my, our culture's version of good and realizing how subconsciously I had associated God's goodness with his gifts. Mm. And when life felt good, like as Cody was saying, when it feels easy, when it's going the way that I envisioned it, when it is in line with my will, uh, God is good. And when it doesn't, I'm like, oh, God's not in this. Where is he? And the truth is, if we believe what the Bible says is true, God is good all the time. And so I was like, my definition of good must be wrong and I need to figure it out. And so as I was in my Bible, uh, the ESV study notes uh, talk about that verse and I wrote it down because I thought it was remarkable. So it says, goodness, God's goodness is not defined by comfort. Rather God's goodness, there's four points. God's goodness is one, anything that transforms us more into the likeness of Christ. Two, anything that brings glory to God. Three, anything that bears fruit for the kingdom. And four, anything that brings us into deeper relationship with God. And that was life-changing for me because I could look at that list and I could see by God's definition of good, by eternal perspective of good, what was happening in us and what has happened in us is good because it has transformed us more into the likeness of Christ. It is bearing fruit. It is bringing glory to God. And it has definitely brought us into deeper relationship with God. And so I think redefining what good is and allowing God to define what good is from an eternal perspective was everything. Yeah. So, you know, we're a multi-generational church and so there's a lot of young families here. and. I'd just be curious if you could kind of talk a bit about how do you deal with your specific season of suffering in the midst of so many young families being in the joyous seasons, bringing babies into the world. How have you had to navigate that? 
Yeah, this has been extremely difficult. In our small group alone, we had friends that were pregnant at the time that we were going to our appointment with Skye. And the day we found out her diagnosis, they gave birth. So at the same time, there's life in one hand, and then we're told that there's going to be death on the other. And we had family members that were pregnant, and just being around that, it was hard. There was a lot of bitterness, a lot of jealousy, a lot of just frustration and anger. And so we started diving into, obviously, the Bible and some other books that we had bought that helped us get through grieving and, and loss. And there's this chapter, uh, Jerry Sitzer wrote this book called uh, Grace Disguised, and he talks about uh, why not, why not me, right? There's so many times we're saying, why me, but why not me? Hmm. And, and as we're reading John, there's this, this verse, and he's talking to Peter, and he's telling Peter how he's going to die. And he's like, well, what about John? And he's like, what is it to you? If I want him to remain alive until I come back, what is that to you? Like, you're called to follow me. And just that perspective of our journey with God is, is unique. You know, we're called to follow him and be obedient even when it doesn't make sense. And we may never understand why sky passed but we're called to be obedient and following God and we know that he's good and that we can trust him in that life isn't just here you know there is eternal life and that yeah. there's there's far more than than what we can see right now yeah that's good um, so in light of the text that we read today uh, for you both what does it mean to rejoice in suffering this was one that I had a really hard time with for a while. And when Daniel was running through the questions with us, he originally had this one first to talk about rejoicing and suffering. And I was like, no, no, that one's got to go last. Um, because until you, until you do the wrestling with God and until you redefine what God's version of goodness is and until you understand his promises you can't even get to a place where you can even comprehend joy in the midst of suffering it feels cruel and sickening to even fathom that until you've really done the wrestling and now as we've walked through it and as we've gone through it we have found that suffering if you let it if you allow it is such a sweet invitation to intimacy with God that I am confident is not possible any other way. Because until you're in a season of life where you are 100% reliant on the Lord every minute of every single day, when you are abiding in Him because you literally have nothing else, there's such a deep intimacy that comes with that. And suffering has such, Daniel talked about this too, such a unique, way, such a painful but beautiful way of stripping away everything. And that feels horrible and painful and confusing. But what gets stripped away is everything, everything that is of you. And you learn that this life is not about me. It strips away your idols, your idol for comfort, your idol for control, your idol for life unfolding exactly how you want it to. 
I think we get so consumed with building our own kingdoms that at the end of the day, I think we really don't care if we're building God's kingdom, if we're honest, because we want to build our own kingdoms more. And suffering has a really sweet way of stripping that away. And as hard as it is, as painful as it is, I'm so thankful for the season of suffering because of the way that it has stripped us and what it's done to us on a soul level. I can say that God is good. And also the way that suffering brings a whole new perspective of the gospel, a whole new weight to the gospel. Because in, if you're not in a season of suffering, if life's pretty comfortable and going good and you're in control and it's unfolding how you've envisioned it and uh, you kind of avoid and bury the painful things and you just focus on the things that make you happy, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm excited about eternity and I'm thankful for God, but I really enjoy my life. The, the kingdom I'm building is pretty great too. And then when all of that is stripped away, there's a whole new weight to the gospel because you realize this suffering that I'm in was supposed to be my eternity. Mm. This is what I, I deserved eternal suffering. And because of Jesus dying on the cross, taking our place, this is temporary. Yeah. This suffering that I'm going through, whatever it is, however horrible it is, whatever stripping and pain it is, this is temporary and God is so good because of that because this is not my eternity. And there is a greater eternal perspective that I now have and get to walk through the rest of my life with of the greater reality of what God has already done, the greater reality of heaven and eternity where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. We do get to be with Skylar. That is the reality. Yeah. What is happening here on earth is temporary. And so if that means we have more suffering in store, if that means that there is gonna be pain and things that are hard, my job on this earth is to build God's kingdom. That is what we're here for. Yeah. And it's not about me because the greater reality is in eternity. And so whatever my life looks like on earth, whether it's hard, or whatever, I am going to give it my all. Because. Because I know when I get to heaven and I get to embrace the Lord and I get to see my daughter, I want them to say, well done. You ran your race, your race well. And so whatever that means on earth, whatever happens on earth, the greater reality is the victory of God and what he has already done. And because of that, we can rejoice and we can say with so much confidence that God is so good. A couple months ago, 
uh, Cody's family has a cabin on the east side of the state. And Cody and Nikki invited me and my wife to come out there with them for the weekend and just be with each other and, and share in life. And when we were driving back, we were over Snoqualmie Pass, and I proposed the question to the car, uh, you know, does God ever speak to you in dreams? And Nikki went first, which I wish she would have now gone last because we never got to the rest of the, the conversation. <laughs> because she shared this vision that God spoke to her. And it was like a marking moment for me and my wife to see the Lord show up in this way. And so I just asked Nikki if you kind of just share that with us. Um, right after Sky passed, I was sitting on the floor of our nursery as I spent a lot of time. It's a very holy place in our home. Um, I was sitting on the floor of our nursery and God gave me a very clear, very vibrant uh, vision. And in that vision, I was standing on a cliff and it was stormy and windy and dark and rain was pouring and I was crying out into the wind, God, where were you? You could have healed my daughter and you didn't. And the Lord came up behind me and he put his hand on my shoulder and turned me around. And I just collapsed into his chest and he just held me and it turned to a golden hour. Everything calmed and he took my hand and he sat me down on the edge of the cliff and he just let me talk. And I just got to let out everything, every emotion, everything that was on my heart. And he didn't say anything. He sat there and he listened and he cried and he held me and he got it. He got it and he saw it. And as that conversation, as I was sharing, I started to feel lighter and I started to feel freedom. And he got up to leave. And I said, wait, where are you going? And he looked at me and he said, I have a very special little girl to get back to. And she'll be waiting to hear about our time together. And she's so very impatient when I'm late. And we're working on something special for you. And I said, can we do this again? And he leaned down and he kissed me on the forehead. And he said, I'll meet you here tomorrow. And I'm just so thankful for our God that loves our children even more than we do, which feels unfathomable. But he is so sweet. Yeah. I remember in that moment, we were all just like <laughs> ugly tears. And Cody's sitting next to me in the passenger seat and he looks over, he goes, so does God speak to you in dreams? <laughs> It was just, it was what that moment needed. So here's what we want to do. Um, we really felt like as a team this week and preparing for this weekend that it would be wrong of us to have this type of a moment, to share this type of emotion together, and then just to say, okay, well, have a nice week. 
And so we really feel a burden on our hearts to want to create some space in the last number of moments together just to minister. And so there's going to be two movements of this. Uh, So I just want to invite everybody to bow your heads, close your eyes. If you are in this room right now and you have experienced child loss, I just want to invite you right now just to slip your hand up and just say, yes, I resonate with this. I know these feelings. I know this, this is bringing up a lot for me right now. And so here's what I'm going to ask of you. If you would be so bold, those of you who have your hand raised, this is an invitation. It's not something that you have to do, but if you want just an opportunity to be prayed over, to have others minister with you, I'm going to invite you to actually stand and just come down to the front. I know that Pastor Ray and Pastor Taylor, Pastor Brent, Cody and Nikki, I know myself, others on our team, Dave and Mary Peters, we want to pray with you. So I'm just gonna invite you right now. If that was you, if you had your hand up and you want to come down forward, please come down right now. And so while these individuals are being ministered over, I also want to, I know for many of you, you may not have dealt with child loss, but you have dealt with suffering in your life. And so if that's you right now, I'm going to invite you just to stand to your feet and just stand where you're at, but stand to your feet right now. If you're in a season of suffering right now and you just need to be ministered to, you want your church to have an idea as to what it is that you're dealing with. Anybody else in the room who would just be willing to stand? Okay, so church, we're a family, and family prays with one another and loves one another well and engages with one another well. So here's what I'm going to ask of you. If you see someone who's standing up around you, I want you just to begin to circle around them and just begin to pray. And here's what you need to know. If they are standing, that means that the Lord is already doing something in them. So really all you have to do is just say, Lord, I bless what it is that you're doing in this individual right now. And so if you see someone, focus around, look at someone standing next to you and let's all stand up and let's just begin to pray for these people. Find where they're at and just begin to pray. Just begin to minister to them. If you feel comfortable, put a hand on their shoulder just so that they know physically you are there, you are with them. And so Lord, we just engage in this time. Minister to our hearts, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to partner with us in sharing Jesus and helping people experience life change, You can support our mission by clicking the link in the description. If this message has impacted you, please subscribe and share. To learn more, visit wearecalvary.com. We'll see you back next week.